We're going to continue looking at the book of Ezekiel, and I'm just giving you an overview here. I'm not going to look at a lot of detail. Obviously, that would take a long time to get into it. And I forgot to mention just this kind of title slide there. Does anybody remember what that is from our study in the book of Hebrews? It's kind of a representation of the Shekinah glory, but it's over what? Yeah, the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. And it's just a, kind of an artist's conception of that. But that is where God chose to manifest his presence in the Old Testament, is in that particular place. Now, it does not contain God, because God is what? Omnipresent. In other words, even Solomon in the Old Testament recognized that that little, from our perspective, magnificent temple, from God's perspective, little tiny little dot, could not contain the omnipotent, the omnipresent, the eternal, the sovereign God of the universe, the creator of all things. But he chose to manifest something of his glory, something of his presence. And last time I mentioned that uh, the glory of God is kind of a theme, a major theme of the book. And where we left off was essentially we were looking at this idea of God's glory referred to several times in the book of Ezekiel. And in fact, I mentioned that one of the most important events of this time frame, the time frame that Ezekiel is writing, and I'll get into a little bit of that in a moment, was the darkest hour of Israel's history. And one thing that made it a dark time is this is the historical record. This is the only place that it mentions that it's implied in other passages But it's in Ezekiel that we find out that the glory of God left the temple. The glory of God, that manifestation that the Israelites were able to observe and see, no longer was present. And we mentioned that the glory of God, in the way that it was manifested in the Old Testament, will not return until even a future time. And Ezekiel tells us, about that. And in fact, at the end, we have the glory returning. We'll talk some more about that. So, I gave you some passages relating to the presence of the glory. It was visible. We'll look a little bit at that this morning in the vision. I'm going to give you an overview of the whole book. And by the way, I, I'm i going to try real hard to get through this the whole thing this morning, so you can help me a little bit on that, because I don't want to extend it. But at the end, what I want to do is give you uh, a passage, a couple of passages that are very, very important that help us to understand some of the aligning of nations today. These alignments could be in accordance with what Ezekiel told us when he writes 600 years B.C. almost. And this is prophetic. This is a prophetic section, so... When you read the Bible, a lot of passages that are prophetic are like reading a newspaper today. By the way, none of you uh, got Joseph and Mary, I mean uh, Amanda, (laughs) a newspaper. (laughs) Because they don't know what a newspaper is. Well, they wouldn't know what to do with it if they had. That's true. (laughs) All they know about is electronic communication nowadays. Oh, okay. (laughs) So they have a little bit of an idea. (laughs) Anyway, if you read the newspaper, 
and you read it with insight and knowing God's plan and what he's laid out, and we've looked in some detail on some of those aspects, like passages that we'll look at at the end, it gives you some insight into what may be happening out in the world. And it gives you hope, basically, because we know the outcome and we know what God's going to do. So we looked at God's glory, and I mentioned the book begins with a vision of the glory of God. We'll look at that a little bit. And in the middle, the, the glory departs, and we looked at several verses there where it departs and it leaves and does not return. God's presence is not manifested in the temple. It was not in the first century. Remember I mentioned that. And there's no temple now, so the presence of God is not manifested in a visible way. Now, in somewhat a visible way, he can see uh, people can see something of the glory of God in the manner in which he's manifesting himself today. And his temple today is those that have committed to him and believe in, in him, and you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And to the extent that you reflect God's character, to that extent the world is able to see. But it's not this visible and very spectacular presence that we had in the Old Testament. So it departed, and at the end of the book we have a return, but it's in the millennium. A period of time that God has prophesied, and we have a lot of detail in the Old Testament, a future period of time. Now, when some people speak of the second coming, they think of the end of the world. Well, that's not the case. When Christ returns, he's going to establish this millennial glory. We'll touch on that also today. And we'll look at it in detail in the Olivet Discourse. I mentioned just for the place uh, where the glory left, this is a map of first century Jerusalem, and it's the red part is basically first century. This is that temple complex, and I'll show you uh, a little bit more later. And that's quite a plot of land. Today, if you would vi visit Israel, the present walls are built on the ancient foundation stones of that same location. It's quite extensive, the distance from... From about this point to this point is a little over a quarter of a mile, about 1,300 feet. So it's quite a large platform. The Mount of Olives is just opposite the, the temple complex to the right there. The Mount of Olives is act, actually off the slide, but this is part of the slope of the Mount of Olives. So that's where the disciples would have been when they were hearing what Jesus predicts concerning the, the buildings on Temple Mount. And the buildings themselves don't look exactly like this, but this is obviously a modern-day shot. I'm old, but I'm not old enough to take photographs of the first century. That's what you see today, and there's a Muslim mosque, obviously, on the very site of where the ancient temple was located, and I believe the very site where the, the, the next temple will be uh, built. And I've got some theories as to what will happen to that Muslim mosque. But this is a photograph from Mount of Olives looking at Temple Mount. So they, on the Olivet Discourse, they're looking at these structures. And we'll talk a little bit about that next week. But it's at also this point where the, uh, the glory of God departs. So that's what we looked at last time. Another major theme of this book 
is the knowledge of the Lord. And we want to look at some passages relating to the knowledge of the Lord. If you read through the book, you'll see a recurring phrase. Look at chapter 6, verse 7. And there's some that occur, I think, before this, but over and over in verse 7. Would somebody read that one real quick? And the saying shall fall in the midst of you, and you shall know that I am the Lord. You shall know that I am the Lord. Now, this is also somewhat related to God revealing his glory. Now, he's going to reveal his glory in the events that take place. And usually when you see this phrase in Ezekiel, and it occurs over 70 times, it refers to God manifesting his presence by his actions. And generally, it's dealing with the judgments that came in the Old Testament and the ones that are prophetic, God will reveal himself in that way as well. Let's look at another one. Look at 10, 13, 14. Do you want to read those also, Dave, since you're there? They shall know that I am the Lord, that I have not said in vain that I would do this evil unto them. Okay, again, this evil, this disaster, that's the way New American Standard translates it. Read verse 13 and 14. Then shall you know that I am the Lord, and their same men shall be among their idols round about their altars, upon every high hill, the tops of the mountains, and under every tree, and under every thick oak, in the place where they did not offer sweet savor to all their idols. I will stretch out my hand upon them, and make the land desolate, yea, more desolate than the wilderness were dark, and all their habitations. They shall know that I am the Lord. Notice the phrase in verse 13, verse 14. That little phrase occurs over and over and over, over 70 times in the book. So knowing God, knowing the glory, God revealing himself, the knowledge of God is kind of the focus of these these passages. We also have another phrase. Would somebody read chapter 11? Anyone care to do that one? Who's got that one? Look at verse 14, and then I'll have you skip to chapter 12, and we'll look at a few there, but 11, 14... The word of the Lord came to me. In other words, revelation, the knowledge of what God is doing. That phrase occurs over 50 times, over and over and over. In other words, he's recording the very words that came to him. That's why we believe this book, obviously, is one of the clearest books on inspiration. God giving his revelation to his servants, in this case, Ezekiel, revealing something of what God has to say, the knowledge of God. Now skip also, notice again in verse 1 of chapter 12. You got it, Connie? Okay, again, verse 8. Okay, 17. Start getting tired of it, right? Verse 21. Okay, now if you keep reading and reading over and over and over and over... The idea that you're supposed to get, okay, this is the word of the Lord. This is important. This is what God is revealing. This deals with events that are going to be, that are going to take place, and these are certain things. God is sovereign over world history. World history are not just random events. Things are taking place, and particularly in our world, things are taking place such that they are setting a stage for future events. And these future events may be close where God intervenes again and visibly displays his glory. So this is a theme of this book, the knowledge of the Lord. 
you will know that I am Yahweh, or I am the Lord, as New American Standard translated. Over 70 times. The word of the Lord came to me again. That occurs over 50 times. Over and over and over. And I just gave you some of the passages where they're kind of clustered closer together. But you'll see that little phrase in many of the chapters. A third major theme is this chronological element or arrangement. We have a clear chronological dating of when Ezekiel received these visions and basically what he saw. And let's look at a couple of verses that deal with that. Who wants to read? Let's begin with verse 1 and 2. Who's got it? Chapter 1, I'm sorry. Got it, Jenny? And somebody else, look up. Who, who wants to do chapter 8? So that she didn't have to flip. Okay. 8-1, eight, and you want to do 20? 20, verse 1? Yeah. Okay, Jenny. First two verses. This is how the book begins. Now, if you that in the 30th year, I was by the river Okay. Clear dating of what he saw, location. This is historical. This is real. What you have in the Bible is not mythological. It's not legend. It's not something that did not take place. And the Bible often ties events, particular events, to history. This is unique about our our Bible. It's different from any other religious book. Book of Mormon doesn't do this. Specific time. Go ahead on uh, 8.1. Who's got that one? Uh, Jim. It came about the sixth year, on the fifth day of the sixth month, as I was sitting in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before that the hand of the Lord God fell on me. Okay. Now, the date, if you tie it to history, the one that Jenny wrote, is 592 B.C. And it gives it to the very day. The one that Jim read is the next year. It's five, If you compare it, 591. And by the way, that first verse there where it speaks, now it came about in the 30th year, 591 is the one that uh, Jim read. Chapter 20, verse 1. Now, for this verse, this would be 590. This is the seventh year. Notice one year later. Okay, and then he reveals what he saw. Now, if you trace through the book, you see the same thing in chapter 24, different date, 26, 29, chapter 30, chapter 31, chapter 32, chapter 33, chapter 40. So we have this chronological arrangement of these visions that Ezekiel sees. Just clue you in, these are real things. These actually happened in time. And the style of Ezekiel, number Four, another characteristic. The style is very, very unique. Ezekiel sees probably more, more visions, more little allegorical pictures that he gives than probably any other book of all of the Old Testament. This makes it a little bit harder to understand because now you have to interpret all of this. And it makes it more difficult. But there's a, a symbol of a vine of a faithful and an unfaithful wife, two eagles, and on and on and on. Just different visuals. Now, you can visualize these things, but understanding the meaning is sometimes not that clear. So you have lots of symbols and allegory. You have even symbolic acts. 
where Ezekiel is to, is told to do certain things, and those acts that he performs are symbolic. They're they're to give kind of a picture of what God is doing, and most of those that are early are symbolic acts of coming judgment, and they're related to ways in which God is going to judge certain things, particularly his people. We also have what are called apocalyptic visions. This also makes this book difficult. Last time I said that Ezekiel is probably the most difficult book of all of the Bible. And this is one of the things that does that. This is a unique type of literature that is only found in the Bible. It's a subset of prophetic literature. Prophecy in Bible is general. There are different kinds of prophecy. A particular type is called apocalyptic. It has its own characteristics. The book of Daniel is also apocalyptic. So also is the book of Revelation. It has apocalyptic elements to it. And what we mean by apocalyptic, there's a lot of visions there, a lot of metaphorical language, more so than in other places, than other prophetic scripture. A lot of imagery. So this is apocalyptic literature. Oftentimes, a lot of angels, angels interpret some of these visions and dreams, and we're going to see that in the book of Daniel as well. Well, there's a lot of that in the book of Ezekiel. In fact, Ezekiel, Daniel, and the book of Revelation are the the main books of the Old Testament, or the Bible, Revelation, obviously, the New Testament, that has apocalyptic literature. Zechariah has some, and most of the other books do not. All right? Use of Proverbs, so a variety of ways that uh, Ezekiel is communicating. The Son of Man occurs, which is somewhat of a unique feature. Now, in this case, the Son of Man refers to Ezekiel, and I think it's just emphasizing humanity. The Gospels, in fact, Jesus himself refers to himself as the Son of Man. Now, when Jesus uses that phrase... It's related to the book of Daniel. We'll look at a passage in the book of Daniel. And when Jesus uses it, it's a reference to Messiah. Messiah in Daniel is referred to as the Son of Man. Don't confuse that with the Son of Man in Ezekiel. Two different ways that the Bible is using that same little phrase. In Ezekiel, it refers to Ezekiel himself. Okay? So there are other things. If we had more time, I could give you some more unique features, but we need to move on. Just real quickly to let you know kind of the the time frame. I gave you this in the background. It's during the exile, about 570, when Ezekiel completes probably the whole book and issues it to the people of God. So the exile of Israel. We have Judah, the last days, and the fall of Judah, destruction of uh, the city of Jerusalem, 586. That's a pretty established date for the end of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. They go into exile for 70 years. They have a partial restoration. Now, much of the prophetic section of the book of Ezekiel doesn't pertain to that portion of history. It looks way beyond that. In fact, it calls it in the last days. And we'll look at a couple of passages relating to that, which is even future from our time. And Ezekiel writes during this 70-year exile, the nation of Israel, some of them are in Babylon. They're in exile in Babylon. Others are scattered. Others are dead. But the nation essentially is destroyed. 
And from here on out, it begins a period that Jesus describes as the times of the Gentiles. If you want a map, because this is real history, this are, these are real events, the Israelites take a journey about 350 miles north and then east, and you can see at the end of the yellow line there is Babylon, city of Babylon. And I'll give you some more information on Babylon when we talk about Daniel. Daniel is there as well. In fact, Daniel is exiled before Ezekiel. He goes in the first first wave of exiles. What the Babylonians did is they took the cream of the crop. They took all the athletes, obviously, first. All the scholars, all the good students, young men, promising young men, they took them into captivity first. They wanted to reprogram them into Babylonian culture. Well, people like Daniel were committed to God's word and were not going to be reprogrammed, but they were educated in the culture, they were familiar, and God used that later in their ministry. So anyway, that's kind of where it took place. Now let's move into our overview of the book. And we can't spend a lot of time in, in very many passages. I want to just highlight some things so you have a feel. This is on the back side of your outline. That's an outline of the whole book. And what I'm going to do is kind of reproduce that outline using a slide that has outline on the top of it. So you already have most of the outline that we'll have up on the, on the screen. I divide the book into three major divisions, three major parts. We have, first of all, things relating to the prophet himself, first three chapters. And what we have is a preparation for Ezekiel to receive these visions that he will receive, which is the rest of the book. And we want to take a look at a couple of things here in this passage, in chapter 1, and... I want to have some of you read, read loudly. We already read the first couple of verses there, so let's skip down. I want you to look to verse 28. Who wants to do 28? And in fact, let's do this, Jenny. And Jim, why don't you pick up the next one in chapter 2. 128. Now what we have here, if we looked at the detail, while she's looking it up again, we have this first vision that he has, and it's a vision of the glory of God, and verse 28 is kind of a summary of that. And he sees different things related, and if you want another picture, I think John sees the same location in the book of Revelation in chapters 4 and 5. And that is a significant vision that John sees in uh, the book of Revelation. I think Ezekiel has a picture of the same, same scene. You got it now? The appearance of the rainbow in the path of the day, so was the appearance of the surrounding rain, such was the appearance of the whiteness of the what I saw at the earlier. Okay, so he's flattened as a result of seeing this vision. But notice a reference of the glory of God. He probably had a greater revelation than most of the people in the Bible. Those that were exposed to this much glory just bowled them over, over and over like John as well. So we have the vision of the glory. We have a commission of Ezekiel in chapters 2 and 3. Jim, do you want to look at those verses? And in chapter 2, look at verses 1 through 5. Then he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, that I may speak with you. This is after he's knocked flat on his face. Get up. Go ahead. 
as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking. Then he said to the Son of Man, I am sending you to the sons of Judah, the rebellious people who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against their day. I am sending you who are stubborn and obstinate children. You shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. As for them, whether they listen or not, they are a rebellious house. You get the emphasis here? What kind of people are the nation of Israel at this point? Very rebellious. Much like uh, some of us in this class, right? Go ahead. There might be application here. They will know that a prophet has been. Okay, they will know that a prophet has been among them. This essentially is the call of Ezekiel where God lays out basically what he's going to do in the rest of the book. He's going to give him revelation and he's to deliver it to the children of Israel. These are the children of Israel at the end of their history, and actually many of them are in exile. So he's going to explain what is happening to them, why they are suffering, why they are going into Babylon and have to reorient everything. Imagine yourself uprooted from Albuquerque, taken, what, 350 miles to a horrible place in Texas. <laughs> where's, where's Glenn? Where's Glenn? <laughs> oh, we need him. <laughs> oh, I see. Good. A horrible place, and you have to readjust everything. You can't, you lost many of your possessions. You have to reorient yourself, and now you have to adapt to a different culture, totally different culture, a Texas culture, and now learn a new language, Texasese, and all that stuff. And this is as a result of God judging. And now Ezekiel is going to explain all of this to the children of Israel. And we won't read it, but beginning in verse 8, he's commissioned. And we have a first commission. He's going to be given something of a second commission later on. We'll see that later. And he's given a charge, chapter 3, verses 4 through 27, where he's just basically the reiteration of him sent out, essentially. The second major division of the book is chapter 4 through 32. And here we have prophecies of judgment. And from what was read, this gives us a hint of some of what Ezekiel is to do. He's, he's to address this rebellious people. They're being judged for their idolatry. And when it talks about rebellion, in other words, they have abandoned the true God of the Bible and they've got after other gods, essentially. And now they are disciplined. Now, this doesn't happen overnight. God has been warning them for centuries by the other prophets that preceded Ezekiel. But they didn't change. They didn't change directions. And the time for judgment has come. Now, Ezekiel is prophesying in that period of time. So he's explaining, basically, as Linda reminded us last time, Ezekiel is like a prosecuting attorney in that he is enforcing the covenants of the Old Testament, particularly the Mosaic Covenant. And Mosaic Covenant specifies many things that the Israelites are to do. Israel is in violation of that legal document. Israel is in violation of their covenants. And the prophets, like Ezekiel, are like prosecuting attorneys. And what they are doing is they are pointing out the violations. Israel is like in a court of law. 
And prophets like Ezekiel are pointing out how they have failed and what the penalty of that is, and the penalty is God's judgment, and it's going to come in a variety of forms, and he's going to give some of the details of that. So chapters 4 through 32 is very negative, very dreadful, very unpleasant for the children of Israel. Now, much of this has been fulfilled already. Okay? So it's on Judah. Now, we're going to have another set of prophecies outside of Judah. We'll get to that in a moment. And there's lots of things here. I don't want to take time, too much time. Let's just get a glimpse of some of this, and then I need to move on. First of all, there are four signs of coming judgment. That's chapters 4. Is that on your outline sheet there? Okay. So all this is on your outline sheet, 5-4. There's also three explanatory messages, and you can read the book and get the details here, and break them down into these three explanatory messages. They all deal with judgment. Chapter 5, verse 5, through chapter 7, verse 27. There's four visions of abominations. That's chapters 8 through 11. There are signs, messages, and parables. And remember what the way I told you the style here? Some of these are allegories, like what I show up there, signs. That's chapters 12 through 19. And let's take a look at something in there. Let's look at chapter 16 just to get a feel for that. Who wants to read chapter 16? Anyone got that? Read it loudly. 32 through 34. Just to give you a feel for what's going on here. He's referring to Judah, southern kingdom. And this is a picture. They're pictured as a prostitute. And the prostitution is, the analogy obviously, is they're like a literal prostitute in that they have abandoned their true husband, who is God himself. That gives you a feel for what is going on in this section. We have judgment on Jerusalem specifically. This is detailed in chapters 20 through 24. And if you want a chart of the whole book of Ezekiel, I'm going to come back to this, but the first part of this, in fact, I'm going to give you all of Ezekiel on one slide. First 24 chapters, basically, are judgment on Judah after Ezekiel is given a first commission It's in this section, and it's because God is judging that we have the glory departing. The glory departs from the temple in different stages. Remember, we saw different stages there. Now, we have also not only judgments pronounced on Judah, but we have judgments on the nations. Now, these are the nations that existed in the time of the nation of Israel in Old Testament, and particularly during the exile. All of these nations that have been antagonistic to to Israel, and in fact, some of them God is using to bring judgment on Judah, God is eventually, after he uses them as his instruments, will bring them under judgment. And some of them, historically, have experienced the judgment of God that is described in Ezekiel. And in our little chart here, the next part of the book of Ezekiel, you have chapters 1 through 24, first of all. 
judgment of Judah. And then next we have the judgment of the nations beginning in uh, chapter 25. And that will run all the way to chapter 32. And many of the nations are spelled out. I didn't spell them out on your outline sheet, but you can follow in the text because they're all introduced. You have Ammon, which was to the east. Moab, which was also to the east, east of the Jordan. You have Edom, which was a little bit more southeast. Philistia, which was on the coastline adjacent to Israel. Sidon, or Tyre and Sidon, also on the coastline. And Egypt, which would be to the, the south, surrounding nations. Then we have the last portion of the book, Prophecies of Consolation. Israel, even though this is the darkest hour of their history, God has not abandoned his people. They remain his people. They are under discipline. And by the way, there's a principle. His people today, if you do not walk with the Lord, Hebrews 12, remember we saw Hebrews 12? There's the potential of what? Discipline today. Does God abandon his people today? No, we believe that you are eternally secure, but you can experience discipline as well. This is what Israel is experiencing. God has a future for them. God has a future for us. He may put us in a period of discipline for the purpose of us coming back and growing. So also the nation of Israel. So there's a major principle there. So the last part of the book, actually that goes to 48. From 33 to 48, basically the end of the book is the third major division, and it's positive. God has a future for the nation of Israel, and virtually everything in that portion is future even from our time. Now, we're going to look at a passage where I think there there are very few passages that we could say are fulfillment of prophecy in our age, and I'm going to emphasize that when we get to the Olivet Discourse. But there are a few, and one of them is a fulfillment in our generation, you might say, in our time frame. Now, some of you were born before a particular date that we'll look at. So we have restoration of Israel. God is going to restore them. Now, what they experienced in the Old Testament was a partial restoration. Ultimately, it's looking at a future restoration, future even from our day. Ezekiel is called as a watchman, and in that he's recommissioned and commissioned now to give positive prophecy. He gave the judgmental prophecy, and now it's going to be prophecy that is uh, positive. So we have a restoration of Israel. We have Ezekiel as a watchman. He talks about shepherds and false shepherds. There were false shepherds in Israel, false prophets as well. And he's going to raise up good prophets and good shepherds. There's prophecies concerning the nations that are also positive. God has a plan for the nations in the future. That's chapters 35 to chapter 36, verse 7. And then we have prophecies for Israel, verses 36, 8 through 37 through 28. And in fact, let's take a look at some of those in a moment. There's a cleansing of Israel. So God has to cleanse them. From their rebellion, chapters 36, 8 through 38. And just to put it on a kind of a timeline here, we have the the origin of Israel, the emergence of Israel, the kingdom of Israel. Kingdom of Israel collapsed 
They went into exile after that period of time. And at the beginning of this period of collapse, we have what is described by Jesus in Luke chapter 21, the times of the Gentiles, where Israel from that point on is under Gentile dominion the rest of their history until their Messiah returns. And this is why Israel awaits a Messiah, because they, in the first century, hoped that uh, the Messiah would deliver them from the Roman Empire that was suppressing them then. They crucified that Messiah, who is Jesus Christ, and we await a second coming when he will end the time of Gentile dominion. Even today, there's a nation of Israel in the land. We're going to look at that passage in a moment here, real quickly. But when the king arrives, he will establish that kingdom and Israel will be prominent over the kingdom. Make sense? Now, if you look at eschatology, what is eschatology? Bible prophecy, the study of future things. Future and, in general, end-time things. Eschatology is Jewish. Everything that pertains to future things pertains to the nation of Israel. There are a few little things that pertain to the church, but they're within Israel's prophetic calendar. Okay? So you need to think Jewish when you think about eschatology. We looked at the failure and their discipline. That's the end of Israel's history and their discipline. There's going to be a future tribulation period. This is an outline of Jewish eschatology. This is all prophesied in the Old Testament, all the way even before their nation and the book of Deuteronomy. The tribulation period is described. There's going to be a restoration of Israel. In fact, that's the purpose of that period of tribulation. I'm giving you this because this is kind of the foundation for what Ezekiel is describing here. We're going to look at it in a moment. There's going to be a Messiah that comes. And he comes after this period of tribulation. Now what's in view in those passages is the second coming from our perspective a second coming of Messiah from our perspective. And that Messiah will establish a millennial kingdom. That's Jewish eschatology. And it's the church that fits into that and is somewhat of a parenthetical period of time. Well, didn't make the goal that I was intending here. What I want to do, let me backtrack a little bit and give you some other passages and I'm going to reserve, we'll, we'll look at two very important passages next week. We'll extend this. I was hoped that I could, some of you knew I wouldn't be able to do it, but <laughs> that's all right. We're not on any schedule, right? What I wanted to do is take a look at this period of time that's called the tribulation, because we have some of that in the book of Ezekiel, and what's going to take place during that period of time. And I think some of these prophecies that we're going to look at in a little bit more detail, in fact, give us some of that detail as to what's going to go on there, and what precedes. In fact, there's an important event that precedes that seven-year period of time, and has been fulfilled. We'll see that. If you want to read, read Ezekiel 37 and 38, and 39. We're going to look at Ezekiel 37 and 38 in a little bit more detail. It's still not real detail, but I'm going to give you a a broader summary of those passages next time. In a couple of minutes, let's look at some of these passages that precede to give you a feel that to build up to that, and then next time 
I won't rush through that and we'll spend a little bit more time. In fact, I'll give you a little bit more detail than what I intended. I was going to more or less survey it. But let's read a few more passages, just in conclusion here. Another important passage, let's read chapter 28. Now, this is in the portion that deals with the judgment of the nations. And one of the nations at that time, this was kind of a city-state, if you will, in that time, Tyre. And in that, we have a record in chapter 26, but uh, who wants to read chapter 28, beginning in verse 12? Let me introduce it here. The first part of this that begins in chapter 26 deals with the Old Testament Tyre at the time of Ezekiel. But by the time you get to chapter 28, and essentially, beginning in verse 11 there, it somewhat transitions from the king of Tyre. The king of Tyre was a literal Old Testament king that God brought under judgment. Now, this is an interesting passage because it transitions and basically gives us a picture of a sovereign or a leader that is above the king of Tyre. In other words, these kings are not entirely acting on their own. These kings are working out a counter-kingdom, if you will. And this is one of the Old Testament passages that gives us some insight into that prince or that king that acts in a spiritual realm behind the king of Tyre. We know him as, obviously, whom? Satan himself. Get those verses there, really? So this is a picture through 16, 12 through 16. It's a description. Now this, keep in mind, it kind of transitions from the literal earthly king to this spiritual non-earthly king. Okay, was the king of Tyre in Eden? No. So he's describing something beyond the king of Tyre. And notice the description here. He is the prime angel, essentially, the, the major angel that God created. Keep reading. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was recovered. The carnelian, topaz, jasper, chrysolite, beryl, onyx, sapphire, carbuncle, and emerald, and sockets, and gravings were wrought to gold. The day you In other words, great richness, you know, great beauty. This is the original creation of Satan. You are the anointed cherub that covers the overshad- with overshadowing wings, and I said you so. You were a following mountain of God. You walked up in the midst of the stones of fire, like a gleaming sapphire stone, upon which the God of Israel walked on Sinai. You were blameless in your ways from the day you created, until iniquity and guilt were found in you. Until when? This is a record of the fall of this great creature called Lucifer in Isaiah. And we know him from other passages as Satan himself. So he fell. There's a fall. 
Through the abundance of your commerce, you were filled with lawlessness and violence, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you out as it were from the mountain of God, and the guardian cherub drove you out in the midst of the sins of life. Okay. And that, there is a continuation throughout world history of a battle between two kingdoms that we experience, by the way. There is a kingdom of Satan. He is a real creature. He was created perfect and fell. Isaiah gives us some detail as well. Isaiah 14, if you want to look at that same person. We won't do it now, but you can read it later. But this is in Ezekiel. This is one of the clearest passages on the fall of Satan. gives us insight there. Let's look at one more passage that kind of introduces to what we'll do next week. Somebody else who wants to read 36? Who's got it? Lou's got it. 36, read verse 8. This is in the portion of Israel's restoration. But you, O mountains of Israel, you shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they are about to come. Okay, they are about to come. Read some more. Read a couple more verses. For indeed I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown. I will multiply men upon you, all the house of Israel, all of it, and the city shall be inhabited, and the, the ruins rebuilt. Okay, he's beginning to introduce us to a restoration of the nation. Now read, skip to verse 12. Yes, I will cause men to walk on you, my people Israel. They shall take possession of you, and you shall be their inheritance. No more shall you be read them of children. Okay, and he goes on and describes in more detail. There's a restoration. And there's a restoration, not what Ezekiel 37, I believe, if I interpreted it correctly, there's a physical restoration that takes place that we are seeing right now. A physical, literal restoration. It's political, it's national, but it's not spiritual. There's two phases in that prophecy that we'll look at in Ezekiel 37. The second restoration is a spiritual. That will not take place until the church is taken out. Now, Ezekiel does this in in several passages. He gives a two-phase picture there. This is one of the few passages, Ezekiel 37, I believe, we've already seen, beginning in 1948, a reestablishment of a nation of the same ethnic people with the same language, preserved the same culture from the same scriptures, and I think the setting is set to be able to fulfill the second phase. And if that's the case then events relating to the church could be soon in their fulfillment as well. We'll talk some more about that next week. Just a closing thought. We need to rescue as many as we can because the time may be short. Who wants to close for us? Go ahead, Jim. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank you for that we're before all things and we all things. Thank you, Lord. We have a plan for all humanity. Thank you, Lord, for showing to make us part of that now. Lord, as we go through the company, we just ask that you guide the regulars of the same in honor and glory in the case of Christ Jesus Christ. Amen. See you next week. Unless the Lord returns before. <laughs> <laughs>